If you would, please turn in the scripture to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be considering tonight verses 5 through most of verse 9, but we'll begin at verse 1 for the context. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Let us give our attention now to the reading and the hearing of God's most holy word. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man, that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man, that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. The grass withereth, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we thank you so much for this your holy word. We ask that as your servants are gathered tonight, that you might speak to us by your Spirit, and that you would cause us to behold Jesus Christ by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the common objections to the Scripture, when it is presented to someone who is in the world, is that they cannot believe except that which they can see and hear with their eyes and ears. The Apostle Peter in his second book and the third chapter and the first verse said this, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. The problem in the world tonight is the problem that's been in the world for many years. It is the problem and the sin of unbelief. Men and women, boys and girls, have their minds fixed solely 
on those things that they can see with their eyes of flesh, hear with their ears, and look upon. And they have not their, th- their eyes and their ears on those things that are invisible. The world claims and rejoices to live by sight, sight of things that are temporary, recent experiences, recent philosophies, recent claims of science so often falsely called, and therefore they will not believe the word of God. Against such a mindset in the world, the Lord comes to us tonight in this second chapter of Hebrews to tell us that Christ Jesus is the one we are to see by faith. In showing us this great truth, the apostle brings out a great argument that is going to appear in these verses. It is a question against chapter 1. And so we're asked to look back at chapter 1 just briefly and remind ourselves what is it that the apostle was bringing out concerning the Son in chapter 1 of Hebrews. You'll remember those first four verses laid out the great supremacy of the Son over all else. And verses 5 through 14 show that the Son is exalted over the angels, superior over them. In what way? In every way, superior to the angels. And it is from that argument, then, that the apostle made an application in the first four verses. We looked at those in recent weeks under the headings of Give the More Earnest Heed and The Great Salvation of Our God. Because first and foremost, we are reminded about the apostle here, the apostle Paul, that he and all the apostles were this above all else. They were pastors. And if one is going to be a faithful pastor, he is constantly going to take the word of God and he's going to apply it to his hearers. And so Paul, he he can't get into the objection on Christ being superior to the angels without applying chapter 1, which he does in those first four verses. He applies the word of God. It does not come to us to tickle our intellect. It comes to us that we might give heed lest we drift away that we might not neglect so great a salvation that is offered unto us for what will happen to us if we neglect Christ the Lord. And then in verse 5, the apostle, having made that application, comes back and lays up for us an objection that's going to be made. It's the, this objection, even as Arthur Pink puts it in his commentary in Hebrews, how could the one who is supreme become man and die? How could the one who is supreme become man and die? That's the question that we're faced with in verses 5 through 8. It's going to be that objection that's summarized at the end of verse 8. How can these things be? If you know anything about Jewish tradition, it sets a very high premium on angels and the spiritual. It considers that the angels are higher than men which would be in contrast with the scripture, as we'll see from Psalm chapter 8, which is quoted extensively in these verses from Hebrews. If you know anything about the Gnostic religions that so many of the apostles were dealing with in that first century as the church was getting started, it looked down on the flesh, to put it mildly. The flesh was evil, the spiritual was good, even denying that Jesus Christ on the cross died in the flesh. That the Son of God could die was a thing unthinkable. 
And so the, the apostle is expecting that objection from us or from some readers, that as we read this, this question will come to us. How could the supreme mediator, how could the perfect great high priest, how could he become man and die? Well, the apostle's going to answer that by showing this is exactly what the Old Testament scriptures pointed to, was that the mediator between God and man would not be only God, but would be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And so that answer, that objection is answered at the beginning of verse 9 in this way, but we see Jesus. Consider verse 5 for a minute as we consider what is man, that question of Psalm 8. The apostle picks up, read it like this, read chapter 1, verse 14, and then read chapter 2, verse 5, to go around that parenthesis. I'll read that for us. Considering the angels, in verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels." But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you take care of him? Here the Lord is introducing that the son of man and the son of God, that all the world is going to be in subjection to him, not in subjection to angels. This world to come is here a reference both to the present rule of Christ in the present age, as well as the rule of Christ to come in that future kingdom. And it is this world and the world to come that is put in subjection to the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. How can man be spoken of so highly? How can the psalmist in Psalm 8, using as the scripture shows us an instrument from Gath to play this song, what a triumphant way to introduce the psalm to us, that the enemies of God are under the people of God's feet, and asking this question, what is man that you're mindful of him? Well, if you know anything of Psalm 8, it begins and ends with a praise of God Almighty. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. That's how it begins. That's how it ends. And in the middle, there is description of man. Speaking of man as being a little lower than the angels. What does it mean for man to be a little lower than the angels? Aren't we much lower than the angels? Well, the scripture shows us that we are lower than the angels in this way, and perhaps in this way only, that we for this time are mortal, and the angels are immortal. They are unable to die. We are able to die, and unless the Lord returns soon, we all shall die as our ancestors have done before us. And so we're a little lower than the angels, able to die. But what else do we see about man? Is that the only thing in comparison to the angels? Well, we see that man is actually higher than the angels in some ways. In what ways? Well, man is both physical and spiritual, has a human body and a soul whereas the angels have our only spiritual beings. And in that way, man is much different than angels, isn't he? 
Man is higher than the angels in that way. Or as the psalm says and goes on to say, that God has crowned man with glory and honor. He is the image bearer of God, and that makes him higher than the angels. The psalm goes on, and he set him over the work of his hands. Has God set the world under the authority of angels? He has not. In Genesis chapter 2, in verse 15, God told Adam that he was to subdue the earth and that it was to be under him. After God destroyed the world in the flood, he told Noah in chapter 9 of Genesis, in verses 1 to 3, to be fruitful and multiply and to overtake the earth, to rule it, to subdue it. Man is higher than the angels in that way because the work of God's hands is under man. All things are to be in subjection to him, as the beginning of verse 8 continues, quoting Psalm 8. You have put all things in subjection to him. 1 Corinthians 6 and verses 2 and 3 tells us of the saints, the elect, the children of God, the holy ones of God, that they will even judge angels. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, but you have crowned him with glory and honor, that he would even excel and be set apart above the angels. Well, against that, we have this objection there in verse 8. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now, here's the objection. We do not yet see all things put under him. Here's the objection. We don't see it. I think we can divide this into two parts, even from Psalm 8, as Psalm 8 puts this before us. And maybe even thinking about your own experiences. We've prayed much today about our unsaved family members. We've prayed much today for revival, that God would cause more loss to be found. What are those great objections to the gospel that we so often hear? Are they not around what we see and what we don't see with our eyes of flesh? There is that one objection that that takes, as it were, the opening lines of Psalm 8, talking about the heavens, the work of God's hands, how wonderful they are. And that doubter, he listens to that. He looks up at the sky. He thinks about such things. And he says, oh, I believe in a higher power. This can't just be chance or evolution. But, but if there is that God, he is too great for me to comprehend. Just look at the heavens They are too vast. No telescope has reached the end of them. Look at the microscopes and the little organs and cells that God has made. How can God up there be mindful of man? He's too great. I'm too small. He doesn't know me. I don't know him. That's the objection of the wicked as they consider this as those that are far from God. They'll say, like many philosophers have said before, I only believe what I can see and hear with my own eyes and ears. But then they stop from looking up and they look down. They look across. They look far and wide at the state of man. And the one who does not believe in God, he looks out and what does he see? He sees that man is in something of a disaster, that there is great bloodshed, violence, evil, wars, disasters, sorrows, sickness, 
And he says, how can we possibly say that God is mindful of man? There is too much evil in the world. Children die too young. Parents die being taken away from their children. There is death in the world. How can we say that God is mindful of him? If God were good, surely he would not allow a little child to die of cancer. Isn't that what the world says? If God who he sa- is who he says he is, surely he will not be allowed to let someone suffer. I don't see this God. I don't see the whole world in subjection under man. Therefore, I won't believe. And from the glorious truth of Scripture, many a man, woman, and child has walked away refusing that wonderful feast of eternal life with Jesus Christ now and forever because they refused to believe what they couldn't see with their eyes of flesh today. And so the apostle knows that objection, and he's able and ready by the work of God in him to answer it, and answer it in such a glorious way as just four words would do at the beginning of verse 9 in the focus of our time tonight. But we see Jesus. What precious words from the Lord himself to us. As we see all this disaster, yes, even death around us, that's not all the Christian sees, for we also see Jesus. Oh, it's true, we could say at one hand, God, man cannot reach unto God. The heavens are so high. The work of God's hand is so vast. Who can fully comprehend it? We cannot attain unto God. It is true, but there is one way that we can know God and the glory of God, and that is if God himself would condescend and that he would come to man. Then, then we can know God truthfully, Then we can know him who created us and all things and made us for his glory and for the praise of his name. And isn't that exactly what God has done? Isn't that exactly what chapter 1 was telling us? That God in the fullness of time sent forth his son made of a woman to dwell among us. That we might behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is true that God is immense and transcendent. And he who is immense and transcendent, he came down to men and became like one of us. We see Jesus. Well, there's an answer to the second concern as well, isn't there? That there is sorrow, grief, pain, and sin. What about the state of man that we see all around us? Where is the conqueror of our enemies? I don't yet see our enemies put in subjection unto us. It seems so often that they are so strong. Ah, but we see Jesus, the one who has destroyed death himself. In fact, that's one of the names that's given to him later in the chapter. He is the one that has destroyed him, who had the power of death. That is the devil. We do not yet see him with our eyes of flesh. Do we see him with eyes of faith? Will we rally around his banner of truth in this dark hour when many are doubting? Or will we abandon him? And will we pursue those things that our eyes alone can see? What about sin? We see sin. I have sinned. You have sinned. Our first parents sinned. 
our children sin, our grandparents sinned, our children's children will sin because of that nature. Where is salvation? Where is the promise of the mercy of God in Christ that all things would be made new? Where is it? That's what the scoffer would say. The apostle brings us to say, we see Jesus. There is the salvation of sins in him. He is the one who is crowned with glory and honor. Him first and all of us after him as heirs of the glory that he would gain for us. So here's the answer to that question. Is Psalm 8 about us men or is it about the God-man Jesus Christ? And the answer is yes. Yes, it's about us and Christ. Us and Christ, or maybe better yet, us in Christ. For Christ has gained salvation that we might, that we might have dominion over the world. Do you not know that God has appointed it for you one day to judge angels? And he who has appointed that has gone before us, conquering all his and our enemies, even doing that on the cross. Will we endure to the end? looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. The world sees not all things in subjection under him, but we see Jesus. What about this death, says the doubter? I see only graves. When the ground seems too full, the sea, the fire, is all too happy to consume more souls, if it were, to drink up more bodies, How many millions have had their final resting place in the seas of the earth? How many tens of millions are buried in the ground? How can we say as Christians that God has put all things in subjection under man, that the Son of Man is ruling and reigning now when death is all around us? Because we see Jesus. He died first. He died on the cross. He died as the first fruits of them that sleep that we who follow Christ might one day rise like Christ rose, not with these mortal bodies, but we'll put on immortality. That's what God has promised us in Christ Jesus, that though we die, yet we will live. It's the promise of Scripture. It's the hope of glory. It's the joy of the Christian, even this very night, for those that are in Christ. And as Jesus asked Martha and Mary when their brother Lazarus had died, so we must ask ourselves tonight, do we believe this concerning the Lord Jesus Christ? But what about those things that are spiritual? What about the kingdom of heaven? That God told us that he would not allow the kingdom of hell and Satan to ever be able to crush his kingdom that he had instituted. What about the church? If we look all around, don't we see in our present day something that is worthy of great sorrow and sadness? The church seems in many places to be failing. So many churches are closed. A net loss last year alone of more than 1,500 churches in this country alone. What of the church? Has God's promise failed? We see ministers falling. We see men that once seemed strong in the Lord that were proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now they renounce or deny in life, in practice, or teaching the very word that they once taught. We see harm happening to God's people, lies, division. And we might rightly ask at times, where is the glory? Where is the glory of that church? Where is the innumerable company of angels that were called into. 
And here the Lord would call us to look up. Look up, because we see Jesus who has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's ruling and reigning tonight over his church. Which way are you looking tonight, brother and sister? Are you looking in front of you? God forbid, are you looking down for help? Or are you looking up to where Jesus is this very night in the flesh, at the very right hand of his Father? receiving the prayers of his saints as a sweet-smelling aroma before his very throne. We see Jesus. But this leads us to a question that we must consider. How do we see him? How do we see Jesus? And I think we can consider this first by looking at how we do not see him. If we can take out some of the negative ways or the false ways, then we can look to the positive and the way that we do see. First, we do not see Jesus by using these eyes of the flesh. The eyes of the flesh are always pursuing counterfeit Christs. The eyes of the flesh are always looking for temporary things to satisfy them so that we might think we've seen Jesus when yet we have not seen him. Think about the Christs of Hollywood. Hollywood loves to set up false Christs before him that Christians would go and say, yes, now I've seen Jesus because Hollywood, because man has set Jesus in front of me. What am I talking about? What about movies like Passion of the Christ? How many churches went flocking to see the crucifixion of Christ in theater form? That wasn't Christ. That was an actor playing Christ, who even now says, as he does new movies, that he is Christ. Imagine that. How can one play Christ? A counterfeit Christ. Or now on TV, we have a series that has become wildly popular, especially by evangelicals. The Chosen, where crowdfunded sources are literally making, at the confession of the own makers, a Jesus in their image, a counterfeit Christ, one who seems like us, because man playing the divine Savior who came in the flesh to take away our sins. What about objects? crucifixes, rosaries, statues, paintings, sculptures. Men and women stand in all of these things. And they say, wow, there is Christ. But none of those things is what Paul meant when he said here that we see Jesus. Those are counterfeits that take the Christian's mind away from the glory and the praise of the real and the living Christ of Scripture. Other things take us away from him. False religions. We look out because we desire the greatness of the glory of the kingdom of God, don't we? We desire the church of Christ to be filled to overflowing. That the church that has 50,000 people, and it might be our church, because there's so many people coming to hear the word of God. And some false religions have that, don't they? Not the word of God, but the numbers and so people are tempted to fall away to the false religions. Or they look, at, they look at a lowly Protestant church and they look at a glorious, ornate Hindu temple or Mormon tabernacle and they say, that's where I want to be. Look how ornate it is. Look how golden. Look how beautiful. I want to be there. Look how many people are there. I want to go there. And yet, doesn't the scripture tell us in Psalm 37 that the ways of the wicked will cease? They look strong now. 
But one day we'll look for them. One day we will look, maybe, in Salt Lake City for the Mormon tabernacle, and it won't be there. Because when the day the Lord returns, all those buildings that man have set up, they will all be taken down. The wicked will be cast into everlasting fire, and the righteous will reign with the Lord forever. We must not follow the desires and lusts of our eyes. They will deceive us. Well, what else deceives us? What else do we seek to look at? Don't we also get tempted to look at treasures of the world? Whether that's wealth or money or position in work, maybe it's other things like family that we would pursue at all costs, family that we would set up in the place of God, family that we might even try to see Christ through. And oh, our family should point us to Christ, but that's not where we see Jesus, according to the scripture here. It's not in family, it's not in wealth, it's not in the treasures of the world. There's a growing blindness, I think, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. A growing blindness because there is a lukewarmness to the glory of Christ where he may be found. It was the great sin of the Ephesian church in Revelation that they were neither hot nor cold to the Lord, but they were lukewarm. And so Jesus uses the analogy of food in the mouth, and when you have something that should be hot, and it's neither hot nor cold, it's spat out. And isn't this what we see so sadly and so often in the church today that there is seemingly a drifting out of the narrow path, a neglecting of the means of grace, an enjoyment of the pleasures of the world? Those many people once seemed strong in the Lord and now their first love seems to be lost. They are all too close to those counterfeits, all too close to false religions, all too close to the lust of the things of the world. And God calls them tonight to awake out of their sleep like the sluggard who's sleeping at noonday. So how often the Christian is asleep when he should be awake pursuing the things of the Lord. And oh, what happens when we drift away? What happens if we neglect so great a salvation that was once given and revealed to us? These are the negatives We see not Christ in counterfeits. We ought not to look for him there, nor in the false religions and ornate buildings of the world, nor in treasures, nor in family or anywhere else. None of these places. How do we then see Jesus? We see Jesus by faith. We see Jesus through that gift of the Holy Spirit that he's given to us. Faith. It's by faith that the scales have come off. It's by faith that the blind now sees The Christian does not yet see all physical things placed under his feet, but the Christian sees Jesus and knows him and loves him. I want to look at a longer portion of Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, where we read this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ 
who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, whom you do not now see, yet you believe. This is how we see Jesus, through faith in his name. Hebrews 11 verse 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There is a contrast here. The world follows the flesh. The world follows the devil. The flesh looks for things that are tangibly in front of his eyes. I don't see all things in subjection to God. But the Christian looks with eyes of faith. It's that old enemy, that old battle that was going on in the garden. The flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And God said these things are at war with one another. The devil himself would desire the Christian tonight to only look at things that he can see in front of him. But Christ says, no, we look to him by faith. We look to him and we see him who is invisible. Not with images that men would make up, not with imaginations of the mind, but as we read of him in his holy word. That's how we see him. The things that are temporary, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Which will we pursue? The things that are temporary or the things that are eternal? I hope that you can say that as for you and your house, you will pursue those things that are eternal. You will pursue the Lord. He's the only one that continues and has power over all things. The Lord. Seek the Lord now while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Come to him by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't this the way that Abraham came to the Lord? Abraham, you remember in that discourse that Jesus had with the Jews, Abraham rejoiced to see Christ's day and he saw it. He looked forward to that day by faith when Jesus would walk upon with men. He looked forward to the day when the city who has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, would come, that day to come, and by faith he saw it. That's the same exact thing that the apostle is telling us that we as Christians see today. We see Jesus in that way by faith. It's the same faith that David had. Samson, Daniel... Timothy, Titus, Priscilla and Aquila, all of these looked to Jesus by faith and all saw Jesus by faith. This is the blessing that Jesus gave to us even when that doubter Thomas did exactly what this objector did in verse 8. Thomas was like this objector after the resurrection. I won't believe unless I see the holes in his hands inside And Jesus, in his merciful kindness, came to that doubting apostle, and he said, Behold my hands inside. And Thomas said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus didn't just stop there and say, Good, it's done. No, he said something for us. Don't miss it. Everything in Scripture is given for our example in the Old and New Testament. 
Everything about Jesus, if it were written down in books, it would fill up more than all the books in the world. But these things are written in the scripture that we might know and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And listen to this application that Jesus gave that day. He said, Thomas, you have seen and have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But we see Jesus by faith. Or take another example. What about that blind Bartimaeus? You remember him in Matthew chapter 10. What did he do? He was crying out in the crowd outside of Jericho, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Now we might say, oh, I'd rather be like a a, a person in Jerusalem or Israel in the days of Jesus. Then I could have seen him with my eyes. Then I would have believed. Oh, but how much faith was there in Israel in the days of Jesus? Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they did not believe in him. But there was a man that couldn't see him. Bartimaeus couldn't behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ with eyes of flesh, for he was blind. And yet that man that day had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he cried out with eyes of faith to the Lord Jesus to have mercy on him. And Jesus said what? Before his eyes were opened, Jesus said to Bartimaeus, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And then his eyes of flesh were opened. And he who was blind saw, but he had before seen Christ with eyes of faith. There's a very interesting thing here in these verses, we, when we read this in the English, the end of verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9, it looks the same. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus. And it sounds like if one is using the flesh, then the other must be using the flesh as well. In the Greek, these words for we see are two different words to draw a contrast between us. They're words that both can be translated see. They're words like that. The one that is in verse 9 We see Jesus is also often translated this way, behold, or to comprehend with the mind rather than the sight. You can read this if you want to see a difference and say, but we behold Jesus Christ. We behold him by faith. We behold him who has conquered, is conquering, will conquer. We behold him. We see him. The great sin of the day is this rejection of Christ because they have said, They do not see him. It's nothing but blind unbelief. Those that think they see today and yet have not put their trust in Christ, it's that blind unbelief that the hymn writer said long ago, it's sure to err. It's sure to scan God's work in vain. But God is his own interpreter. He will make it plain. He'll do that either through the granting of faith in this life or the revelation of himself on that great day. And who will escape so great a salvation if it is neglected today by turning to the flesh and saying, I don't see it with my flesh, therefore I don't believe it. God says, would say to that person, oh fool, don't be so stiff-necked and hard of heart. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. See him by faith. Where is he revealed? In the scripture. We read of all the great things he has done. The end of verse 9 says it. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He was crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone or every child, as it might be 
translated. Brothers and sisters, we do not yet see all the promises of Scripture in the fullness tonight complete. We do see sin, sorrow, death, sadness, and grief, but that is not all we see. We behold Jesus Christ as he's revealed to us in the Scripture. We see Jesus. What a marvelous thing. The angels desire to see Christ the way we see him. We see him as our own personal Savior, the one that has saved his church with his own precious blood. There is no such promise given for angels. They long to look at the things of the Lord and to behold it, and we get to behold him tonight by faith. Therefore, beloved, stand firm in the things of the Lord. Stand firm in the word of God. Do not give one inch as those that follow the flesh would desire you to give, to compromise on his word. They would desire you to give up something that Jesus is teaching. They would desire you to believe things that are false. Don't believe the lies. Believe the truth. And when they ask you, how can you stand against so great a host that is against you? You can say, well, you don't see all things under the foot of man, but I see Jesus ruling, reigning, conquering. And he who conquers is surely going to come again and bring his holy people to himself and cast out those from him who would not profess his name into the bottomless pit that is never filled, where the flame is never quenched, where the worm never dies. And as you say such things, call them to flee from that wrath of God to come and to come to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you've tasted and seen of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, what should happen if you drift away from it? What should happen if you neglect so great a salvation? Don't neglect it. Hold fast to it. Don't drift away. Anchor yourself, as it were, to Christ, the rock of your salvation. And one day... One day, you who've seen Christ by faith will see him with the eyes of flesh as the trumpet sounds, as the dead, maybe you who are dead, are rising from the dead and ascending up into the sky. Him whom tonight you see by faith, your eyes will behold. You will see his pierced hand. You'll behold his pierced side and you'll sing praises to him and worship him who lives forever and ever. Press on to that day. Go forth in the strength of the Lord, for we do not see yet all things under him, but we see Jesus. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we thank you that you are the ruler, that you are the conqueror, that you are the God that has defeated death, that you have brought us who are dead in our trespasses to sin to life and new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would please abide with us, your people, tonight. Let us not slip, not one of us, away from this narrow path that was through that narrow gate that leads to the glories of heaven forever. But, O Lord, if any of us are drifting, we ask that you would draw us back, turn our eyes away from the flesh and the lust thereof, and cause us to follow after the faith that was once delivered to the saints, wherewith we see Jesus truthfully by faith. O Lord, we ask that you would cause the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ to spread and abound throughout all the world, that many more might come to taste and see that the Lord, he is good, and blessed and happy is the man who puts his trust in him. We ask now that you would strengthen and increase our faith 
that we might delight ourselves in thee. And even as we have sung earlier tonight, that we might say as we go to our homes, we have truly seen the Lord God today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.